Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers part two of his sermon series entitled, The Golden Chain of Salvation. just a bit read verses 28 to 30. Uh, I've been asked a couple few times as we have begun to talk through um, these truths, this doctrine, uh, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty um, in salvation. Uh, I've been asked a couple few times of some resources, references, um, two, two books uh, that I would highly encourage you to take a look at uh, pertaining to this topic would be The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink um, and then a book called Mere Calvinism uh, by Jim uh, Orrick. That book, The Sovereignty of God, um, if you go to read it, uh, you'll be saying, oh, Pastor Josh said that. Uh, I'm relying heavily um, on that book. His basic progression of thought in there is, is essentially my outline for this morning because I do not believe I can improve upon it um, from the way that he's presented it there. Um, so those would be helpful for you to look at. Romans 8, let's read 28 to 30. Then we will pray and ask for our God's help. Verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we ask God that you will come. We ask God that as we draw near to meet with you, you will draw near to us. We pray for your spirit to give great power, um, to give great grace that we will see, that we will understand, that we will be transformed. God, I ask that you'll protect this service. Lord, we are looking at truths which, which show your great glory. And, and, and Lord, I, I just long for everyone in here, all of us to be um, amazed, to be transformed, uh, Lord, as we see. So Lord, every soul that is here this morning, Father, we pray that you will do what it is that we most need done. Any who are here and they have never turned from their sin, never turned from rebellion, never understood their need uh, to be saved, and they have never come to Christ to believe, believe, Lord, we pray that that will be done. Today will be the day that changes their eternity. And Lord, for your sons and daughters, those that have trusted Christ, Lord, we pray that you will do this great work of sanctifying us, uh, renewing us, changing us, uh, Lord, to grow us in obedience and holiness, to see more of who you are. Transform our thinking, we pray. Show us more of yourself, more of the world. So, Father, all that needs to happen, Lord, for that, that to be done, please give the grace. Father, I, I pray that there would be great work uh, that is done in the preaching, teaching, Lord, that this lump of dirt that's going to take your word on his lips, Lord, that I'll be useful in teaching. And then God, the, the miracles that happen in the right hearing of the word, Father, we pray that that will happen. So please, Lord, come, bless, protect, and work your purposes. And we pray this through the name of your son. Amen. When I was in uh, college, um, went to a college for people training for ministry, Bible college. And we would often get together in dorm rooms and such uh, at night. And sometimes there'd be big groups and we would be talking and sometimes debating theology. And oftentimes the way that it would go down, I can assure you was um, not um, speaking the truth in love. We would sometimes be screaming at each other to make points and such not done in a godly way. But there was one particular night where a big group of guys were all hanging out in a dorm room and they got to debating this truth, this doctrine that we're discussing right here. God's predestination of souls to salvation. 
As they kept talking, things got heated. Uh, there was one particular young guy in the group who just kept insisting that predestination is not in the Bible and that God cannot possibly be like that. But throughout the conversation, a number of guys kept showing from the scripture, just kept pointing out text and um, uh, these various passages where there's just no honest denying it, that this is what is taught. And there came a point where he just became speechless because there was no more defending his position. It had been squashed like a bug again, not lovingly, but it had been shown that there is no denying that this is what the Bible says. And at that point he did something that nobody was expecting. He took the Bible that he had been holding in his hand and really quite dramatically threw it on the ground and screamed, If that's how God is, then I want nothing to do with him. And he stormed out of the room. He went to his room, packed his belongings, and went home. The flesh's resistance to this doctrine can be quite strong. Man's pride and man's flesh does not like this doctrine. Now, for the sons and daughters of God, once you submit to this truth and you work through its ramifications, you come to see that it is beautiful. It is glorious because we see more of the glory of God. It is a truth that brings security, a truth that brings joy and one that brings peace. Last week, we began walking through verses 29 and 30. Uh, what is commonly called the golden chain of salvation. We looked at the goal and the purpose of God for the name of his son to be magnified to the place of supremacy and for those who are in Christ to be made into the image of Christ. And then we began to look at this first link in the chain for those whom he foreknew. And we spoke about what that means. This um, reference where it's called the golden chain of salvation. I, I think that's a pretty helpful metaphor because what we see is that each one of these works of God is, is interlocked with the one previously. God foreknew certain people. Well, directly linked, connected with that is those whom he foreknew set his love on. He has predestined chosen before even the ages began that he would bring them to salvation. He foreknew them. Psalm 139 says, I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. In Jeremiah 1, God spoke to that man as he was calling him to be a prophet and said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. This week, we look at this next step, this next work of God. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So I want to think through this doctrine with you and and just take uh, the entirety of this time thinking it through. And I'm going to do it like this. I I want to build a biblical argument. Um, So I don't have uh, an outline with points that we often do. Instead, what I have is a progression of steps, the building of an argument. As I pointed out, this is the basic argument that A.W. Pink builds in his uh, his book, The Sovereignty of God. So I have a, a progression of four steps, four progressions, starting at ground level and then working to what I believe by the time we get to the end, the connection then to predestination of souls to salvation is just obvious once we see God's sovereignty as a whole. So here's the first progression if you're taking notes. We begin at just the basic statement, God is sovereign. Romans eleven thirty six says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. God is sovereign and here's what it means. To say that he is sovereign, here's what sovereignty means. It means that God has complete freedom, authority, wisdom, and power to do whatever he desires. 
Now, we're going to come back to that numerous times this morning. So I want you to hang on to that. The freedom, the authority, the wisdom, and the power to do what is desired. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. People often speak of nations being sovereign. I always chuckle. I'm a Christian. I know what sovereignty is, what ultimate sovereignty is. It's a joke to call a nation sovereign. Nations cannot be completely sovereign because people cannot be completely sovereign. You and I are limited. We are limited in our freedom, our authority, our wisdom, and our power. You and I have things constantly that we want to do, but we're unable to accomplish them because of our limitations. You might want to own a continent or even rule the world. You are unable to make that happen. And even if, like Nebuchadnezzar, you were granted by God a certain amount of earthly authority, it would only be temporary you have people you would like to heal of cancer, you are unable. There are loved ones you would like to keep from dying, you cannot do it. God, though, is sovereign. He is able to do whatever he desires. Before the universe was made, there was nothing. No sun, no moon, no billions of galaxies with their billions of stars, no angelic creatures. All that was, was the triune God. And he was as he is now fully and completely God, fully and completely sovereign. He does as he pleases. He could have created or not. He could have created one little planet or the billions that he has. He could have made one creature or the multitudes that he has. He could have made all of those creatures all equal in their dignity or done as he has. Look at eagles fly, fish swim, elk walk, and ask the question, who got to decide all of this variety? Who got to determine how all of this would be made? You know, there, there's such a wide range of glory and dignity that God has made in creation. There are angelic creatures whose entire existence is to burn with glory, uh, glory that is such that when we see in the Bible, humans encounter those angels, they're tempted to worship them. And then all the way down to gross bacteria that can only be viewed with a microscope. Who gets to say how they would all be made? It is God's prerogative. He does as he pleases. No one is above him to tell him what to do. There is no authority that rules over him. No law that he must answer to. God is a law unto himself. God is righteous. And thank God for that. Sometime try to imagine the horror of a universe where there were a completely sovereign being, but who was wicked. That's a nightmarish kind of thought. But God is righteous and he does as he pleases, which is to say he does whatever he wants and no one has the right to tell him what he should do. Now, people try all the time. Lumps of dirt try to tell the Almighty what he can and cannot do, but no one has the authority. I submit to you that the truth of God's sovereignty is preached even in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At creation, God said, let there be light and light which did not yet exist obeyed him. And during the plagues of Egypt, he commanded the light not to shine and the light obeyed. Give that a try sometime. At creation, God formed the seas. He gathered them together, the lakes, the rivers. He set their boundaries. He formed the mountains. The Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry looked out over a storm on one occasion and commanded it to hush and it obeyed his word. Try that sometime. You and I cannot even create a single drop of rain, cannot form a molecule of hydrogen, at God's command, the earth swallowed up Korah. At his word, the three Hebrew boys were kept alive in the furnace. And when they came out, not a hair of their body had been curled by the heat. God is sovereign. 
you and I are constantly stopped by limitations. Even sleep is a daily reminder of our weakness. Every time that you have to eat, you are being reminded that you are dependent on your creator. You and I can only go minutes without breathing. God does not eat or sleep or breathe. He has put these things in the world to remind us daily of our frailty and our dependence. We are not sovereign, but he is. God created all, owns all, sustains all, rules all, governs all, and in a great mystery, what exists continues to exist because God continues to give it its continuation. Colossians 1, in him, in Christ, all things hold together, which means that if God were to get tired of it all and just decide to stop, he would not have to exert power to destroy the universe. He sustains its very existence by his word. He rules, he owns, he governs. Turn over to the book of Job with me. Book of Job chapter 38 if you're familiar with the chronology of the book of Job, Job endured afflictions in the plan and design of God. Job, while being obedient and submitting to the Lord, he does have a series of chapters where he complains and grumbles. And we have this series of dialogue between Job and his friends. And Job wants... Uh, wants to have a meeting with God and believes that if he could just plead his case with God, that God would see that he's right. God answers Job in Job 38. I want to just point out some of the verses that are here. Begin with me in verse one there. Job 38, one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and I said thus far you shall come but no farther and here shall your proud waves stop. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Jump to verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? This is talking about God sustaining the stars in the sky or loose the cords of Orion. Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with their satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. We can keep going for a really long time. And by the way, you should. And there's a point. So when you're reading this in your Bible, uh, don't, don't just get through the first 30 verses and go, okay, I get the point. No, part of the point is to be overwhelmed. God asked Job more than 100 questions like, where were you when I cast the stars in the sky? There is, there is truth that God is overwhelming Job and us with. What is the truth? The supremacy of God. The godness of God. One of the primary doctrines in the book of Job is the godness of God. He has the right to do whatever he wants. And no one has the right to question him. He is sovereign. Here's the second progression. It should be obvious now, next step, that his sovereignty includes time, history, 
and the events that unfold on this earth, what has, what is, and what will come to pass. Time is not an eternal entity that existed independently of God. Time is a creation of God. 2 Timothy 1.9 and Psalm 90. God is not bound by time. It's not that God is really old. God is outside of time. Time is his creation. And then history. What has come about on this earth and what will this is, it is truly, like this isn't an attempt to be cutesy, okay? It is truly his story, his story. What comes about is what God has decreed before the ages began. God has purposed, God has planned, God has decreed, and it is coming about in time. Now let's spend, let's spend a bit of time on this one because sometimes folks have a hang up here. They're not willing to, they're not willing to submit to this one. Turn to the book of Isaiah with me, please. Let me show you a few passages in Isaiah. Uh, we'll start in Isaiah chapter 40. I mean this first passage just simply to speak to the, the bigness, the godness of God. I love all of those places in Isaiah uh, where, where God says things like, I am God and there is no other. There is no one like me. Isaiah 40, starting verse 17 there. All the nations are as nothing before, me, before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Jump to chapter 45. 45, you can start in verse 6 there, kind of towards the end of the verse. I'm mostly giving some introduction into verse 7 there. So Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So just to clarify, when the nice things of life happen, yes, they have been ordained by God. But you also see here that he is claiming and saying that when calamity hits, when pain, plague Pestilence, famine, war, they are also ordained by God. He is orchestrating all things. If, if you have this idea that God's the one doing the happy things, but you know, when bad stuff hits, sometimes this is how God is explained, right? When the bad stuff hits, well, that's just the times that, you know, God, he's trying to stop things, but people just, you know, they just won't listen to him and he's got this enemy. And so God's trying, but he just can't stop everything. If that is your idea of God, your God is too small. I am the one creating light and forming darkness, causing well-being and calamity. Your framework for who God is has to be able to encompass all of these things that he has purposes even in pain. Jump to chapter 46. Look at verse 9. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. There's a lot happening in that passage. So who, who is this bird of prey that he refers to? If you back up into chapter 45 and kind of read the context through, this is referring to Cyrus, the Medo-Persian. What is interesting is at this point in Israelite history, Cyrus had not even been born yet, and he was still a long way away. When the book of Isaiah was written, Babylon had not yet even come and attacked Judah. But the prophets go on to explain that Babylon will attack Judah. They will be carried off into exile. After 70 years of exile, God will raise up this one that he calls by name Cyrus, who will bring the people back into the land. And so I want to ask you the question, is God declaring that he sees these things 
or is he declaring that he is doing these things? It's undeniable that the scripture is saying that he is doing them. And the distinction is huge because the distinction is who is doing the orchestrating? What is coming about? God does not just see the future. He is causing the unfolding. Look at verse 11 again. Look how he just spells it out. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. You know, in all of these verses so far, we're not yet talking about the predestination of souls to salvation, but it is already becoming clear and obvious because this is who God is and this is how he works in the world. It was prophesied in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 that Judas would betray Jesus. Judas, a man who made decisions, who was not a robot, not a puppet, made choices, real choices. But what he did unfolded the predetermined plan of God. Just let that sink in. There is incredible mystery between how these two come together, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And, but for those who object to the doctrine of election, because you'll hear this sometimes, God's not allowed to be tinkering with people's decisions. What do you make of this? Cyrus was a man, not a robot, not a puppet, made decisions, made choices, and yet he did what God ordained. Judas did what God ordained. Pharaoh, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God said. You need to be careful when you say about what God's allowed and not allowed to do. You are trying to limit his sovereignty. He's bigger than that. Cyrus made decisions. Cyrus was not a robot, not a puppet, and yet God ordered circumstances, stirred his heart, worked mysteries we cannot fathom so that Cyrus chose. Cyrus chose, but what God had ordained to happen. And the same with Judas. Judas is responsible. He really did it. See, so, sometimes when people first begin um, to understand this doctrine, we have a, a joke that we sometimes say, we call it the cage stage. Um, and what it is, is once you learn this doctrine for the first time, we kind of joke that you should just be locked up in a cage for about five years so you get a better handle on these kinds of things. Because sometimes um, when people first learn this doctrine and, and we, and you know, growth takes time, we sometimes misunderstand it at first and we see that God's sovereign. So we come to the conclusion, okay, well, that must mean that we're all just puppets and God God's just moving the strings and we just do whatever. It's bigger than that. It's more complex than that. We make real decisions. Judas is responsible for his actions. Judas chose what he chose, sinfully decided to do what he did because of evil in his heart. And yet what happened was the unfolding of the plan and the purpose of God. Jesus said that not a sparrow, not a sparrow, falls to the earth apart from the will of the Lord. There's a lot of sparrows. That's a lot of details. That's a lot of molecules in the universe that he is governing. Third progression. What is it that drives these plans of God? There are some really important words that are used throughout the Bible. You might jot these down. Let me give you some of the key words to really highlight. Isaiah 46, my purpose will be established. Remember the word purpose. In Isaiah 46, again, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Remember the word pleasure. And then jump to the New Testament with me, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, and you can stay there because we will be coming back in a bit. Ephesians 1, verse 11, look what it says. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. There's that word again, who works all things. Now, let me pause there and point out the all things part. 
Because maybe um, some would begin to concede the sovereignty of God, but they might think that things like God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that maybe there are just like 20 or 50 times in history that God's intervened in some of these big ways. Look what he says. He works all things. And then notice the phrase, after the counsel of his will. Remember the phrase, the counsel of his will. And what it means is that God does what he wants. He is not bound by any other being. All other beings are his creation. He has no equal and he certainly has no superior. The definition of sovereignty is that God has the freedom, the authority, the wisdom, and the power to do as he pleases. And God is working to bring about his purposes, which he has planned in time. If you do not know or do not believe that God is sovereign, you are going to be one of those who always thinks that God's frustrated, disappointed, that God keeps trying to do stuff and it just keeps failing. We've all heard God explained kind of along these lines. You know, here, here God is all the time. He's just trying to do good and people just keep thwarting him. I mean, they kicked him out of the schools. He don't know what he's going to do now. An unsovereign God is a constant failure. And you notice that this is the way that sometimes people think of God. It is actually the case that sometimes people feel sorry for God. Have you ever encountered this? Have you ever heard the invitation to come and be saved, to believe on the Lord Jesus to be saved, kind of presented like this? Now, I'll exaggerate it a little bit because that's what I do. Poor little Jesus. Poor little Jesus. I mean, he just loves you so much. and He just, he just wants somebody to love him too. I mean, he's standing outside the door of your heart and he's just a knocking. Won't you let little Jesus in? I mean, he's looking at you with these puppy dog eyes. I mean, it's raining outside. Can you let Jesus in? That's not the sovereign God. That's not the sovereign God. The sovereign God is the happiest being in the cosmos. That's a sermon for its own day. The eternal joy and delight of the living God. The eternal God, the sovereign God, was joyful before the world made, was made, remains joyful, eternally will be joyful and delighted. This is part of his godness. To feel sorry for God is to insult him. He's the happiest being in the cosmos. The sovereign God does not fail. He is unfolding his purposes. He is unfolding his secret purposes. We only get revealed small doses of what he has determined to bring about. Isaiah 14, 27, for the Lord of hosts has planned and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? The answer is nobody. Now, another subject that you'll need to give some time of meditation to at some point is the truth. That the Bible reveals there are two different wills of God. Hang with me there for just a second. There are God's secret plans, his secret will, and then his revealed will. So Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so here's what we mean by this. Judas betrayed Jesus and that displeased God. But it is also the reality that the Bible reveals that this was ordained by God and it accomplished his will. It accomplished God's secret will that he only shows to us in small doses, like when the prophets tell us about things that will come about. And so, yes, the Bible will show both that God is saddened by man's sin. And yet it also tells us that nothing can thwart the plans of God. And if it happens, it has been orchestrated by God. 
So when we talk about predestination, we are talking about God's secret will. You and I uh, cannot look in the world and know who is the elect of God. And yes, it gets confusing. We're wading into deep waters here. There are places where we are told that God desires all to come to repentance and that he takes no delight, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then the Bible also tells us that he has ordained these things and they are coming to pass. So there is mystery. You, you might think in, in, in a greatly dumbed down, simpler version um, of two different wills happening at the same time. You know, you and I, uh, for you who have uh, children, we know that the Bible teaches us when they disobey that we are to lovingly spank them. But in the moment when it happens, it gives us grief and sadness to do that. So there are two wills happening there. There's the greater purpose, but then the momentary grief that happens at the time that it occurs. Consider this kind of thing from two passages in Acts. Acts 2, verse 23, speaking of Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God predestined these things to occur, but they speak to a crowd to say, but you sinfully did a, a wicked thing. What you sinfully did resulted in the plan of God coming about. The work of salvation accomplished by Jesus through the cross was not God's, his first idea failing and think, okay, how do I bring some good out of this? No, it was determined by God that this would happen. In fact, when Peter tried to stop Jesus from dying, when he drew his sword and tried to defend him so that he would not be arrested, do you remember what Jesus said? How will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? And then Acts 4, 28, the apostles prayed to God and, and just use this language regularly, speaking of what had taken place to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Consider some more ways uh, that we see God's sovereignty over men. Proverbs 16, 9 the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Exodus 4, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 14, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he chases my people. And when he chases my people, I bring his army into the sea and I will destroy them. And when I destroy them, I will be honored as my people see it. And they will know that I am the Lord. Exodus 9, 16, speaking to Pharaoh for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. In John 15, 16, Jesus said to the apostles, speaking of calling them to the work of ministry, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. To declare that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. This is a vital part of his godness, which is why the Bible spends as much time on it as it does. This is just all through. God goes to great lengths so that we will understand this. Listen to me. This doctrine is not just presented in Romans 9 and Ephesians 1. This doctrine, what, once you come to see this and believe it, when you're doing your Bible reading, you're going to start to be like, it's everywhere. I mean, it is in the book of Genesis. Was Abram looking for God? God came to Abram and Abram became Abraham because God came to him. This is all the way through the book of Revelation, where we see that those who enter eternal life, they enter because their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. This is all through the Bible. This is not just a New Testament doctrine. Progression number four. Now that we've made the case for the overall sovereignty of God, his sovereignty over creation, his sovereignty over events that take place and his sovereignty even over man. Now consider 
his sovereignty in the work of predestining certain individuals to salvation. Uh, Turn with me to Ephesians 1. You might already be there. Ephesians 1. Let's read the first 11 verses. Uh, Ephesians 1, it begins with a, a greeting. And then verse three, we have this statement of worship, blessed be God. And then there is this recounting of the greatest gifts that God has given. And you'll notice that this gift of predestination is highlighted amongst these great gifts. So Ephesians one, start in verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints. That's important. He is speaking to those who are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, your call is you must come and be saved. But to you believers, here are gifts that we celebrate. Through the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, it's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then here's the end. Here's what it's all leading to, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in him, in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration. uh, The language can sound a little confusing there. What he's saying is God has revealed the mysteries that were kept hidden in ages past, but now he is revealing his great purposes, the administration of the gospel, all things being fulfilled and summed up in Christ. So keep reading there. Uh, administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. It is just stated clearly here that God has predestined souls to salvation. God cho- if you are in Christ, God chose you as he was planning and decreeing the events of this world. And he is working this golden chain in your life. That's why there is certainty. If he foreknew you and set his love on you, designed you in his mind before the world began, then he predestined that he would come and save you. And then in the course of your life, there came a point that you encountered the gospel God orchestrated that. God orchestrated even details that maybe your heart on that day, you heard the gospel in a way with a humility that you had not had before. He was ordering and working. And as you heard the gospel, he justified you when you believed. If you are justified, he is sanctifying and keeping you, guarding you for the day that you come to glorification. The New Testament just constantly speaks of the elect of God. That language is used eight times. Jesus often used that kind of language like Matthew 24, 31, that the angels will come and gather his elect from the earth. The language of God's choosing or his chosen ones is used often. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Paul is expressing that when he prays for these believers, he gives thanks, knowing brethren beloved of God, his choice of you 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul writes and says, here's, he shows, here's the unfolding of my ministry and what I do. Here's what drives me. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Do you see what he's saying there? 
What he's saying is, as he goes out and preaches the message of the gospel, he knows that God has people who are elect out there who are going to be saved. My job, go find them. Tell them the gospel. And as I do, they are drawn. They're already his. He is going to draw them by the preaching of the gospel. The language that Paul uses there is directly connected with Jesus's words in places like John 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they come to me. He's referring to sheep who belong to him even before they are converted. What does this mean? It's the same language as that the Father has given to Jesus a people to go and save. He continues on, I am the door of salvation. They enter through me and are saved. I am the good shepherd. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. The whole passage is founded on the sovereignty of God. They were designated by the Father to be his, but he has to get them yet. Christ's sheep hear his voice and they come. That's poetic language that refers to in the same way that you at your workplace, in your family, as you are sharing the gospel, uh, telling the message of Christ and calling people to come follow Christ, poetically speaking, that's like the voice of the shepherd being uh, audibly spoken through you. And when his people, when his elect hear his voice, they come to him. The role of the Christian in gospel work is telling the message of Christ to the best of our ability and doing it well and often, sweating, bleeding, puking, dying, whatever it takes to make the gospel known. And the harder we work, the more people who will be saved. That's man's responsibility. And God is big enough to ordain even those things. But he is at work. And then there are passages that just clearly refer to this work of God without using the obvious catchwords of like election and predestination. So for instance, John 6, 37 to 40, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You can kind of see the golden chain of salvation right there. It will be finished. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Second Timothy 1.9 speaks of the grace given to the elect before the ages began. And then I'll just share just one more, bringing it to a conclusion here. Acts 13, 8. Acts 13, 8, Paul preached the gospel in a city. And then we are told, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. So is it that the people believed of their own accord and that made them appointed to eternal life by God? No, they believed because God appointed them to eternal life. And when they heard the gospel, God came. God came and did his work. The distinction is important because it is all about who gets the credit here. And to ask who gets the credit is to ask who gets the glory. Really, at the end of the day, that's part of what is going on here. In my salvation, how much credit does God get? And then how much do I get to keep for myself? So if you believe in justification by faith alone, then you're saying God gets a lot of credit because he showed a lot of grace. But, but I chose myself, so I, I get to keep this little sliver of credit. When you understand that from start to finish, it is the work of God, we see he gets all the credit and all the glory because it was grace from start to finish. And that's why we refer to these truths as the doctrines of grace, because it reveals from start to finish, every milligram of it has had to come by God's grace. God chose not because of any good foreseen in us. He chose according to his own pleasure out of grace. So Christian, see that this affects how you see everything. This affects how you see the world. And more than anything, it affects how you see God. 
There's nothing bigger than how you see God. You need to know who he truly is in order to understand yourself, understand reality. You don't understand life unless you know your reference point, unless you know him. That's why the Bible, first and foremost, is not addressing the horizontal relationship of how man interacts with man. It does that, but that's not its big agenda. The big agenda of the Bible is your vertical relationship with God, how you interact and relate to the living God who made you. And when we see him as he truly is, then we worship because who he truly is is glorious. When we see God as small and limited, our worry increases, problems seem bigger, we rely on ourselves, we try to find our treasure in absurd places, we get life wrong when we get God wrong. And Christian, this is meant to produce within our hearts deep humility and sweet gratitude that results in worship. Christian, you need to meditate deeply on hell. You need to meditate deeply on the wrath that we deserve. You need to meditate on its length, on the terrors of that agony, and you need to shudder. You have not understood hell until you shudder. And then when you feel the, the, the heat and the awfulness of hell, and you consider that God saved you from that, and it wasn't just that he offered you a choice without any, without any work. He came to you and drew you. You will be more humble, more grateful, and you will worship. This is meant to bring us to fall and worship. And to you who are outside of Christ, your greatest need is to come to him. Your greatest need is this golden chain of salvation. You need to be in Christ. Turn to him. Believe. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. He is the door. Enter through it. Now I'm going to pray here in just a, a second. I'm going to first give you a few moments of silence for last confession of sin, heart preparation, and then I'll close this in prayer and I'll give some instructions with the Lord's Supper. So let's bow. Father in heaven, we bless your name and say thank you. Thank you for the abundant grace you have given. And Lord, as we keep learning about just how much it took to save us, we are again and again overwhelmed. So Lord, help us to worship you as grateful, humble people. We pray that you forgive us of our sins. Forgive us, O oh Lord, of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lord, look on us. Renew our relationship with you, O oh God. Strengthen us and bless us. And we ask these things through Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.